Turn to your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 17. I'll read the first uh, 14 verses. We'll uh, cover the whole chapter, but I, I won't read the whole chapter. Uh, as a reminder, it's our practice whenever we read Scripture to stand uh, when we do so. So let me ask that you stand now. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight, day, eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in this Your Word. Uh, Grant that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. All for our good and the glory of Christ. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to um, create a a bit of a firestorm, maybe would be a good word. If you want to create a bit of a, um, a conflict, an argument, a debate, if you want to, if you want to cause issues in this community with other believers, other churches, ask one question. What do you think about baptism? Throw that question out there and, and wait and see the responses you get. You, you'll, you'll find people, particularly if everyone's, in, if everyone's honest, you know, it's not a spectrum. You, you can't say baptism's a spectrum. There are too many variables. It's a, it's a graph. There are too many different quadrants you could, you could 
be in. For some, um, it's, it's tradition, it's custom, and so you baptize. It's just what you do. It doesn't mean anything. It's not, there's, there's nothing spiritual going on here. I'm not even really sure why we do it, but it's tradition and it's custom, so therefore we will baptize. For others... Uh, I'm saved because I was baptized. You ask the question, how do you know you're saved? Well, I was baptized when? I mean, that's the, the, the ground, the hallmark, the basis of their salvation. For others, they've been baptized, and this might be the problem here. You thought you were going to get off the hook, didn't you? For others, they've been baptized and they never think about it. They never are aware of it. They never look back to that day at all. And, and give it any credence whatsoever. People are all over the map when it comes to what do you think about baptism. The danger, perhaps the greater danger for us in this room and in our tradition is never to think about it at all. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. And so I don't really even think much about baptism at all. The same could be said for circumcision in the Old Testament. I mean, there are, are times when God's people don't even think about it at all. Moses in, in Exodus 4, his life is in danger because he has not thought about circumcising his son. He's completely neglected it, he's, he's given no thought to it whatsoever. The people of Israel on the, on the verge of taking the promised land, an entire generation has not been circumcised. An entire generation of people delivered from Egypt en route to the promised land, right there inside of it, getting ready to go over to cross the river into the promised land, and they've, the entire generation, never been baptized. Their parents didn't even think about it. Out of sight, out of mind. It was uh, nowhere in their, in their thinking. Moses is writing, well, to that generation, quite honestly. They're writing to God's people, Israel, en route somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. He's writing to encourage them to wholehearted devotion to God, to live for Him, to remember the covenant sign, and, and to apply it to their sons, and to be wholeheartedly committed to God's covenant. This chapter is written with that in mind. Notice first, Moses in writing this uh, appeals to the conditions of the covenant. You know, this is the fifth time that God has given Abraham the same promise. It changes a little bit. You get a little more detail from time to time. But this is the fifth time that Abraham has heard this promise from God. We find it twice in Genesis 12, right at the very beginning, verse 2, and then again in verse 9, I think, then at the end of chapter 13, and then in chapter 15, and now here again in chapter 17. There is one pretty big difference, though. It's the first time 
conditions have ever been given to Abraham. It's the first time Abraham has anything to do in, uh, in, this, in this covenant relationship. And notice he's given two, uh, two conditions. Walk before me and be blameless. That's his requirement. Those are his conditions of this relationship. And, and that's what a covenant is. It's a, it's a covenant relationship. In fact, notice how God is introduced in verse 1. The word, the name that Moses uses is Yahweh. Did you, did you notice your all capital letter Lord? That's, that's Moses. That's the English uh, translator's way of saying, hey, Moses is writing Yahweh here. That, that covenant-making, covenant-keeping name of God, His personal name. He is God, but He's also Lord. He's Yahweh. He's creator and sovereign, but He's also got a, a name. Abraham's being called into this covenant relationship with God, and he's given conditions. Every relationship has conditions. You can say, so-and-so is my friend. Do y'all hang out? Well, no. I mean, do y'all ever talk on the phone? Well, no. Do you email each other? No. Do you, do you chat? Do you Snapchat? Do you text? Do you interact at all? Well, no. I mean, I have a class with him, but he's my friend. Do you ever do anything with him at all? Well, well no. But... Part of the point is, relationships take work on both parts. I mean, yeah, we're married, and married people are always married, but, I mean, I'm never home. I don't hang out with my wife at all. I never do anything with her. I, I, don't, I don't see her. I'm gone all the time. I don't have any interest in being around her, and, and that's not really much of a marriage. You, you would look at that relationship and go, there's something wrong with that relationship. Part of what we find here in Genesis 17 is that there is this relationship, this covenant relationship between God and Abraham, and it actually does require participation by both people, by both parties. Abraham's told, walk before me and be blameless. Live openly and outwardly committed to God. It's a lot like the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Walk before me. Your heart should be wholeheartedly committed, fully and completely committed to God. Is it given to God or is it given to the things of this world? Is it given to God or is it, is it given to yourself or to others around you or to stuff or Whatever else may fill that void, that's walking before God. You and I struggle a little bit with the word blameless. I'm pretty sure the Bible says no one's blameless. I'm pretty sure that, that the Bible says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm pretty sure the Bible says that, that there's no one righteous, not even one. I'm pretty sure the Bible says that all have, have gone like sheep, gone their own way. Turn to his own way. So what does it mean by blameless? Noah was blameless. Job, we're told, was blameless, not sinless. It doesn't mean that they 
never broke God's commands. It's above reproach. It's wholehearted. It's completely given to God. Isn't that the Christian's commitment? I mean, shouldn't that be... Let me rephrase that. Because far too often we know it's not. Shouldn't that be the commitment of the believer? A a thankful response to God coming to us in Christ. We have a, a desire for wholehearted commitment to Christ. A longing to live righteously before Him. That's... That's what's expected of Abraham. Those are the conditions of this covenant. Unreserved surrender to God. We have these conditions of the covenant. That doesn't mean all of a sudden that now the fifth time God has given these promises, it doesn't mean that the the plan changes. It doesn't mean that in Genesis 15, Abraham was saved by grace through faith, and here in Genesis 17, he's saved by salvation. He's still saved by grace through faith. It doesn't change the the conditions of his his, uh, salvation. He's called into this relationship and given a a responsibility to, to cultivate that relationship with God. The conditions are new, but notice the promises aren't. We see the, the conditions of the covenant, but we also see the promises of the covenant. The same things that God promised in chapter 12, and again in chapter 15, He promises again right here in 17. We have a little more detail. One or two Specifics that haven't been mentioned before, but the concept is the same. Let me just sort of point them out uh, briefly. Look at verse 2. God says, Walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then again in verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. In fact, I'm going to change your name. You're you're no longer going to be Abram. I'm going to change it to Abraham because you're going to be the father of many nations. That's what Abraham means. In fact, for that matter, kings, not just nations, but kings will come from you. God, again, promises descendants. He promises children to Abraham. In fact, this is the first time, verse 15, we didn't read this far, but this is the first time that Abraham specifically told that the child will also be Sarah's. Now that it was assumed, it was rightly assumed that the child would belong to Sarah. But notice in verse 15, even, even her name gets changed from Sarai, which I found too hard to say, so I've been saying Sarah all this time, and to Sarah. It still essentially means princess. The meaning doesn't change much. But the point is this. It's common to change a name to go along with a new future condition. Abraham and Sarah are going to be, they're going to be parents. 
They're promised descendants. Notice they're also promised land, verse 8. The land that Abraham is in, the land of the Canaanites, the land of his sojournings, the places he's, he's been living and kind of walking around the last, well, 20 plus years, is going to belong to him and to his descendants forever. He's promised descendants. He's promised Land. He's also promised a special relationship. Verse 7, I will be your God and I will be God to your children after you, your descendants, your offspring after you. I look forward to the day when we, Grace Covenant Church, become the third church in a row that I've been on staff where we had to put in a sidewalk. I know that's a simple thing. For us, it's probably a bigger deal than it was either of the other two places. We had a building. We had a permanent facility. We had a permanent structure. But we put sidewalks in anyway. In Greenville, we put in a sidewalk from the office building over to part of the Sunday school wing. As the, as the concrete was, um, was being put in and they were putting in the sidewalk, uh, we were in staff meeting and the senior pastor had come in and seen the wet cement and said, y'all, we have to go right in this. I mean, it's wet. Now's the time to do it. We have to go out there. I wrote Genesis 17, 7. I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. In Oxford, we put in a sidewalk. We got kind of annexed a new part of the building we were in. And so that we, we put in a new sidewalk from uh, what became adult Sunday school back to the children's sort of nursery wing. We wanted to make it easier for adults to get from Sunday school to get their kids from Sunday school, from nursery, so they could get into worship and not get caught in the worship-only traffic. I thought it fitting as, as parents are walking into this back door of the nursery to as they walk in to see right there, Genesis 17, 7, I will be God to you and to your descendants after you, the very ones you're going to pick up right now. When we build a sidewalk, you can bet, I'm going to write Genesis 17, 7 in our sidewalk. I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. God reiterates this promise of children, of place, and this special relationship, a wholehearted commitment to Abraham and to his descendants and to his children and to his offspring who will come after him. Now, just in case, it's been 25 years. I mean, it's been 25 long years. I mean, that's, for some of you, that's, I mean, a lot longer than you've been around. For some of you, that's, you know, roughly half your, I mean, it's, it's basically a third of our life expectancy. I mean, it's, 25 years since Abraham had been called out of Ur and told, I'm going to have, give you children, you're going to have descendants, and I'm going to give you this place. 25 years. You and I can't wait 25 minutes for lunch. We can't wait 25 minutes for somebody to do what they said they would do. Forget 25 hours, 25 days. 
We don't have to wait 25. We, we live in an instant gratification society with, with drive-through restaurants and, and, and instant grits and instant pudding. And, and, because we, we can't wait. We can't wait that long. It would be tempting to think, I'm starting to wonder if God can really do this. He's been saying this for 25 years. Can he? Should I start to doubt his power and authority and ability to bring to fruition these promises? I mean, 25 years. Notice verse 1. Moses uses the name Yahweh. That's not the name God uses when He comes to Abraham. He doesn't say, Hey Abraham, I'm Yahweh. He appeared to Abram and said, I am God somewhat mighty. I am God a little bit authoritative. Notice what it says. El Shaddai. God Almighty. I'm the one who can do well, nothing is outside of my power. The one who, I don't want to over, I don't want to overly caricature creation. So please, I'm a little nervous that this is being even recorded because this will be out there for all the world to hear. If you're listening online, bear with me. But you get the sense when you read Genesis 1 that it is so easy for God to create. That you could almost picture him sitting in a lounge chair with his feet up. Let there be. I mean, it's that simple. He speaks and there is. If he can make something out of nothing, that includes Isaac. That includes Abraham's descendants. He's a hundred. She's ninety. It's been twenty-five years. Everything about the passive says, God, you, I really don't think, I'm, I mean, I'm starting to get worried. I just don't think you can. And so God speaks to Abraham in this passage and he introduces himself as, I am God Almighty. I'm El Shaddai. I have brought out of nothing before, and I can bring out of nothing again. Abraham, that includes the descendants that you don't yet have. That right now are still nothing. You and I would do well to pay attention to the names of God throughout Scripture. Um, you're told to write... And every now and then to use this thing we call a thesaurus, which says stop using the exact same word every time you write. Okay, you can change stuff to things from time to time. Use a different word. Find a better word. Don't use the same word every single time in this paper. I mean, 42 times, that's really... Use a thesaurus, find a different word. That's not why 
the Hebrew writers change the names of God. If you see repetition, repetition in, in the Bible, it, it's important. It probably matters. But when in one verse you have both Yahweh and God Almighty, that also matters. Moses didn't change the words to make it more interesting for you and me. The words change because Moses writes verse 1. A covenant-making, covenant-keeping God comes to Abraham, and these are his words, Hey, Abraham, I am God Almighty. You and I would be encouraged by the names of God throughout Scripture. We see the conditions of the covenant, the promises of the covenant. We also see the requirement of the covenant. It's the only requirement given to Abraham. It's the only time there's a requirement given to Abraham. The covenant is, is monergistic. It's one worker. Only God passed through those pieces back in Genesis 15. We pointed this out before. God was, was saying, as this was the, the, the practice in the ancient Near East, this is how you cut a covenant. You cut the animals in half, you pull the halves apart, and there's blood, and there's guts, and there's all kinds of stuff, and you pass between the pieces, and you are saying, if I fail to keep my end of the bargain, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. God alone passed through the pieces. Abraham, if I fail to do what I've said I will do, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. Let me be cut in two. Let me be put to death. Then I, He's staking his life and existence on fulfilling this promise. And, and yet, we come finally to the first requirement that Abraham is given in verse 10. All the males in your household are to be circumcised. Now, you have to. You have to wonder. There's no record of an objection here. It's, it's wholehearted, devoted commitment to God. In the back of his mind was there, I mean, Noah got a rainbow. And I get this. You have to wonder, was he thinking... Is this, is this really where we're going? Circumcision wasn't unique to Israel. Other nations around them practiced it. It was, it was part of, of that, that coming of, to, of, of manhood, that coming of age. It was a sort of a, more of a puberty rite in the nations around Israel. But, but they're not the only ones that, that practiced circumcision. So it's, it's not completely made up for Israel and Israel alone. But notice verse 12. This wasn't a, a puberty, coming of age, boy to man sort of right. Eight day old infants were to be circumcised. Every male, every child born, every male born in your house, every male brought into your house, any male that becomes a part of your household receives this sign of the covenant. It's not, it's not a, 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 a rite of passage, if you will. 
God says this sign marks out the people of God and separates you from the world around you and dedicates you to me. It's a, it's a separation from the rest of the world and a sign of wholehearted devotion and commitment to God. Now, we could, we won't today, but we could use this and, and run into, well see, this the Bible teaches covenant baptism. It teaches infant baptism. What we do here at Grace Covenant is we baptize the children of believers. That was part of our confession of faith, our affirmation of faith just a few minutes ago. We could run that way with this passage. But I don't think Moses wrote Genesis 17 to convince as a, as a defense for infant baptism. Infant baptism didn't exist yet. He's writing to encourage God's people on the verge of the promised land to be wholeheartedly committed to God. Notice the covenant sign, this requirement of Abraham. It's it's not just for Abraham, but it's for everyone in his household. Every child born in his home, verses 12 and 13. Every male throughout your generations, it's permanent, it's lasting for all of the rest of his descendants. Every male bought with your money, any foreigner brought into your house, that, that okay, maybe they're not your, your sons, but because they've become a part of your household, they too receive this covenant sign. You remember... God's promised descendants. God's promised Abraham and Sarah. He's promised them children. They'll be parents of kings. They'll be parents of nations. It makes sense then that right at the point of conception, this bloody sign would be applied to all of Abraham's male descendants. Flesh cut off as a picture of the need for a circumcised heart. Yes, that sign today is baptism. We see that in Colossians 2, among other places. That's something that, quite honestly, every Christian church agrees on. Every Christian church, nobody mandates circumcision anymore. We all agree that baptism is the right sign of entrance into God's covenant people. But how often do you think about your baptism? You might think about your baptism when we have one here at Grace Covenant. You might. You may be too distracted with, look how cute that baby is getting baptized, to think about your own baptism. You may never think about your, your baptism. We should. It marks us out as, as different, as set apart from the world and unto God. We should think about that far more frequently than we do. But I want you to be aware, Abram couldn't not think about his circumcision. He'd take a shower and he's aware of it. Everything he does, he changes his clothes, he's aware of it. That sign was always before his eyes. It's always fresh in his Mind. And notice in verse 14 just how seriously God takes this sign. 
be cut in your flesh or be cut off? Be cut in the flesh or be cut off from God's people altogether. You either receive the sign of the covenant and are therefore members of God's household or you don't and you are not members of God's household. Be cut in the flesh or be cut off. God gives clear instructions regarding this sign. He warns against the dangers of failing to keep the sign. And he, he urges obedience both to Abraham and to his descendants. You can, you can imagine Moses and God's people on the verge of entering the promised land. The, the, the entire generation that hasn't been circumcised. They're encouraged in this passage to be circumcised, to receive the sign of the covenant, and, and be wholeheartedly devoted to God. I didn't read this far. But verses 23 to 27 show us Abraham's response. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, who's now 13, and all those born in his house and, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins, eventually, that very day. You know, obedience, parents, you should teach your children this. Obedience isn't obedience unless it's prompt, complete, and joyful. Obedience is not obedience unless it's prompt, complete, and joyful. Abraham didn't wait another day. He didn't spend time going, I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. I'm not sure. I mean, this, give me a minute. I, this is going to take a minute to process. I'm going to have to think through this. He grabbed Ishmael, his 13-year-old son, and all the other men in his household and circumcised them that very day. No one is left out. No one uh, fails to receive the sign. It's prompt, complete, joyful obedience. You might be tempted to think, uh, yeah, but Abraham doesn't know the culture we live in. I mean, evangelism? Do you, I mean, Make disciples of all nations. You want me to go out into this world in 2018, predominantly post-Christian America, and tell people about Jesus as the only way of salvation from sin they don't even believe exists to have a relationship with a God they're pretty sure doesn't exist. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's just, I'm sorry, but that's just old and ancient. And there's no way that that works in 2018. Baptism, Christ alone, remember the Sabbath. You're kidding, right? I mean, those things just aren't going to happen in this culture. Abraham's surrounded by pagans. Abraham's surrounded by all kinds of, of pagan 
uh, worshipers of, of false gods. And he's given this sign of circumcision. And he says, okay. Guys, gather around. We're doing this today. We're doing this now. We're not going to delay. We're not going to put this off. We're going to do this right now. Abraham's response is prompt, complete obedience. Why? He's not gaining God's favor. It's because he trusts God's promises. He receives this sign. He's willing at 99 to put all the men in his household through this because he trusts God's promises. The real aim of this passage is not a defense for infant baptism, but to encourage you and me in a world that opposes Christ to live for Christ nonetheless. Wholehearted commitment to God and to His promises. If we truly trust Christ alone for salvation, then the the natural response of that would be to walk before Him and be blameless. Perhaps you've seen, I saw uh, a Facebook, this was years ago, back when I saw Facebook more than I do. Um, Somebody had this on their status. If I was worth dying for, then Christ is worth living for. This passage is intended to encourage us in that. This passage is aimed at, at encouraging us to remember our baptism, to remember that we have received God's covenant promises and are marked out and are separate from the world and to trust His promises and to run wholeheartedly to them, to love and trust and to keep those promises and to be holy and committed, to hold it wholly committed to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your promises which are safe and secure in Christ. Which are affirmed in Christ. The fact that Christ has come to live and die for us is evidence that You will accomplish. You will bring about Your promises. Father, we pray that You would use this passage to strengthen our faith to grow in us a desire for prompt, complete, and joyful obedience, even in the face of a world that is opposed to Christ and opposed to the Gospel. Father, we pray that we would be marked not just out as Yours in our baptism, but marked as Yours in the lives that we live. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.